Chapter 48 of Mystery of the Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wendy Hall. Mystery of the Sea by Bram Stoker. Chapter 48. Dunby Haven. We had today been so hot in the immediate pursuit of Marjorie that we had hardly been able to think of the other branches of our work. But all at once the turn of the wheel brought up as the most important matter before us what had been up to now only a collateral. Hitherto the seagull had been our objective, but now it must be the Wilhelmina. Adams had been in charge of the general investigation as to these boats, whilst Montgomery had been attending to local matters. It was to the former, therefore, rather than the latter, that we had to look for enlightenment. Montgomery and McRae were the first to arrive, coming on horseback from Fraserburg, the former with all the elan and abandonment of a sailor ashore. He was frightfully chagrined when he heard that the seagull had got safely away. Just like my luck, he said. I might have got her in time if I had known enough, but I never even heard of Garden Town till your wire came to me. It isn't on the map. He was still full of lamentings, though I could tell from the way he was all nerved and braced up that we should hear of him when the time for action came. When we arrived at the station at Macduff to meet Adams, we hurried him at once into the carriage which we had waiting. He gave us his news as we hurried off to Gardentown. We felt that it might be a mistake our going there, for we should be out of the way of everything. But we had made arrangements for news to be sent there, and it was necessary we should go there before holding our council of war. Adams told us that the whaler Wilhelmina had been reported at Lerwick two days ago, but that she had suddenly left on receipt of a telegram, hurrying in the last of her stores at such a rate that some of them had actually been left behind. He had not been able to gain any specific information by wire. The master of the ship had said to the harbor master that he was going to Nova Zembla, but nothing more definite could be obtained. When we got together in the hotel at Gardentown, we were surprised by another arrival, none other than Don Bernardino, who had come by the same train as Adams, but had had to wait to get a carriage. We had got away so quickly that none of us had seen him. Things were now at such a stage that it would not do to have any concealment whatever, and so after a moment in private with the Don, I told my companions of the attack on the Spaniard in my house and of the carrying off of the great treasure. I did not give any details of the treasure or its purpose, nor did I even mention the trust. This was now the Don's secret, and there was no need to mention it. We all agreed that if we should have any chance at all of finding Marjorie, it would be by finding and following the members of the gang left on shore. Sam Adams, who was, next to the Secret Service men, the coolest headed of our party, summed up the situation. Those fellows haven't got off yet. It is evident they only came to look for the treasure after Miss Drake had been shipped off from Gardentown, and I'm pretty sure that they are waiting somewhere around the coast for the Wilhelmina to pick them up, or for them to get aboard her somehow. They've got a cartload of stuff at the very least to get away, and you may bet your sweet life that they don't mean to leave it to chance. Moreover, you can't lay your hand at any minute on a whaler ready for shanghaiing anyone. This one has been fixed up on purpose and was waiting up at Lairwick for a long time, ready to go when told. I think myself that it's more than likely she has orders to take them off herself, 
for a fishing smack like the seagull that has to be in and out of these ports all the time doesn't want to multiply the chances of her discovery. Now that she has done a criminal thing and is pretty sure that it can't be proved against her, she'll take her share of the swag or whatever was promised her and clear out. If the Wilhelmina has to get off the gang, it'll have to be somewhere off this coast. They are nearly all strangers to start with and wouldn't know where else to go. If they go south, they get at once into more thickly peopled shores, where the chances of getting off in secret would be less. They daren't go anywhere along the shore of the Firth, for their ship might be cut off at the mouth, and they might be taken within the three-mile limit and searched. Beyond the Firth, they can know nothing. Therefore, we have got to hunt them along this shore, and from the lie of the land, I should say that they will try to get off somewhere between Old Slains and Peterhead. And I'll say further that inasmuch as the shore dips in between Winifold and Girdleness outside Aberdeen, the ship will prefer to keep up the north side so that she can beat out to sea at once when she has got her cargo aboard. Sam is about right, broke in Montgomery. I have been all along the coast since we met, surveying the ground for just this purpose. I tried to put myself in the place of that crowd and to find a place just such as they would wish. They could get out at Peterhead or at Bottom, and so I have set up a watch at these places. Some of our sailors who were sent up to me from London are there now, and I'll stake my word that if the Wilhelmina tries to come in to either of these places, she won't get out again with Marjorie Drake on board. But it's not their game to come near a port. They've got to lie offshore, somewhere agreed on, and take off their friends in a boat. There are dozens of places between Cruden and Peterhead where a boat could lie hidden and slip out safely enough. When they got aboard, they could hoist in the boat or scuttle her, and then up sails and off before anyone was the wiser. What I propose, therefore, is this, for I take it I'm the naval expert here, such as it is. We must set a watch along this bit of coast, so as to be ready to jump on them when they start out. We can get the keystone to lie off Buchan, and we can signal her when we get sign of our lot. She'll be well on the outside, and these scallywags don't know that she'll be there to watch them. When the time comes, she'll crowd them into shore, and we'll be ready for them there. If she can hunt the Wilhelmina into the Firth, it will be easy enough to get her. Fighting Dick Morgan isn't a man to stand on ceremony, and you can bet your bottom dollar that if he gets a sight of the Dutchman, he'll pretty well see that she hasn't any citizen of the United States aboard against her will. Dick wouldn't mind the people in Washington much, and he'd take on the Dutch tomorrow as well as the Spaniards. Now, if in addition this gentleman's yacht is to the fore, with any one of us here aboard to take responsibility, I guess we can overhaul the whaler without losing time. I'll be aboard, said Donald McRae quietly. The Sporan is due at Peterhead this afternoon. Just you fit me up with signals so that we'll know what to do when we get word, and I'll see to the rest. My men are of my own clan, and I'll answer for them. They'll not hang back in anything when I'm in front of them. I wrung the hands of the two young fellows. East and west, it was all the same. The old fighting gallantry was in their hearts, and with the instinct of born captains, they were ready to accept all responsibility. All they asked was that their men should follow them. They immediately sat down to arrange their signals. 
Montgomery was, of course, trained in this work and easily fixed up simple scheme by which certain orders could be given by either flags or lights or rockets. There was not need for much complication. It was understood that when the Wilhelmina should be sighted, she should be boarded at once, wherever and however she might be. We were, one and all of us, prepared to set at defiance every law, international, maritime, national or local. Under the circumstances, we felt that given we could once get on track with our enemy, we held a great power in our hands. Before long, McRae was off to Peterhead to join his yacht, which would at once start on a sort of sentry go up and down the coast. The rest of us set about arranging to spread ourselves along the shore between Cruden and Peterhead. We did not arrange watches, for time was now precious to all on both sides of the encounter. If an attempt was to be made to take off the treasure, it would in all probability be made before morning. Every hour that passed multiplied the difficulties and dangers of the blackmailers. The weather was becoming misty, which was a source of inconvenience to us all. Thick patches of white fog began to drift in from the northeast, and there was ominous promise in the rising winds of there being danger on sea and shore before many hours had passed. We each took provision with us for the night and a sufficiency of rockets and white and red lights for our signaling work, in case there might be need of such. In disposing of our forces, we had not, of course, a sufficiency of men to form a regular cordon, but we so arranged ourselves that there was no point at which a boat could land which was not in view of some of us. I was terribly anxious, for as the evening came on, the patches of white mist came driving in more quickly and getting thicker and more dense. Between them, the sea was clear and there was no difficulty in keeping accurate observation. But as each fog belt came down on the rising wind, our hearts fell. It would come on like a white cloud, which would seem to strike the land and then close in on every side, as though wrapping the shore in a winding sheet. My own section for watching was between Slane's Castle and Dunby, as wild and rocky a bit of coast as anyone could wish to see. Behind Slane's runs in a long, narrow inlet with beetling cliffs sheer on either side, and at its entrance a wild turmoil of rocks are hurled together in titanic confusion. From this point northward, the cliffs are sheer, to where the inlet of Dunby has its entrance guarded by the great rock with its myriad of screaming wildfowl and the white crags marking their habitation. Midway between those parts of my sentry go is a spot which I could not but think would be eminently suited for their purpose, and on this, for some time, I centered my attention. It is a place where in old days the smugglers managed to get in many a cargo safe, almost within earshot of the Coast Guards. The modus operandi was simple. On a dark night when it was known that the Coast Guards were, intentionally or by chance, elsewhere, a train of carts would gather quickly along the soft grass tracks or through the headlands of the fields. A crane was easily improvised of two crossed poles with the longer one to rest on them. One end held inland could be pushed forward or drawn back so as to make the other end hang over the water or fall back over the inner edge of the cliff. A pulley at the end of this pole and a long rope with its shore end attached to the harness of a strong horse completed the equipment. Then, when the smugglers had come under the cliff, the rope was lowered and the load attached. The waiting horse was galloped inland, and in a few seconds the cluster of barrels or cases was swung up on the cliffs 
and distributed amongst the waiting carts. It would be an easy matter to invert the process. If all were ready, and I knew that the gang were too expert to have any failing in that respect, a few minutes would suffice to place the whole of the treasure in a waiting boat. The men, all save one, could be lowered the same way, and the last man could be let down by the rope held from below. I knew that the blackmailers had possession of at least one cart. In any case, to men so desperate and reckless to get temporary possession of a few carts in a farming country like this would be no difficult task. So I determined to watch this spot with extra care. It was pretty bare at top, but there was a low wall of stones and clay, one of those rough fences which are so often seen round cliff fields. I squatted down behind a corner of this wall, from which I could see almost the whole stretch of my division. No boat could get into Dunby or Langhaven, or close to the castle rocks without my seeing it. The cliff from there up to where I was was sheer, and I could see well into the southern passage of the haven inside Dunby Rock. Sometimes, when the blanket of fog spread over the sea, I could hear the trumpeting of some steamer far out, and when the fog would lift, I would see her funnels spouting black smoke in her efforts to clear so dangerous a coast. Sometimes a fishing boat on its way up or down would run inshore, close-hauled, or a big sailing vessel would move onward with that imperceptible slowness which marks the progress of a ship far out at sea. When any fishing boat came along, my heart beat as I scanned her with the field glass which I had brought with me. I was always hoping that the seagull would appear, though why I know not, for there was now little chance indeed that Marjorie would be on board her. After a spell of waiting which seemed endless and unendurable, in one of the spells of mist I thought I saw on the cliff a woman, taking shelter of every obstacle as one does who is watching another. At that moment the mist was thick, but when it began to thin and to stream away before the wind and trails like smoke, I saw that it was Gormala. Somehow the sight of her made my heart beat wildly. She had been a factor of so many strange incidents in my life of late years, incidents which seemed to have some connection or fatal sequence, that her presence seemed to foretell something fresh and to have some kind of special significance. I crouched still lower behind the corner of the wall and watched with enhanced eagerness. A very short study of her movements showed me that she was not watching any specific individual. She was searching for someone or something, and was in terror of being seen rather than of missing the object of her search. She would peer carefully over the edge of the cliff, lying down on her face to do so, and putting her head forward with the most elaborate care. Then, when she had satisfied herself that what she sought was not within sight, she would pass on a little further and begin her survey all over again. Her attitude during the prevalence of a mist was so instructive that I found myself unconsciously imitating her. She would remain as still as if turned to stone, with one ear turned windward, listening with sharp, preternatural intentness. I wondered at first that I could not hear the things that she manifestly did, for the expression of her face was full of changes. When, however, I remembered that she was born and reared amongst the islands, and with fisher folk and sea folk of all kinds, whose weather instincts are keener than is given to the inland board, her power was no longer a mystery. 
How I longed at that moment to have something of her skill. And then came the thought that she had long ago offered to place that very power at my disposal, and that I might still gain her help. Every instant, as past things crowded back to my memory, did that help seem more desirable. Was it not her whom I had seen watching Don Bernardino when he left my house? Mayhap she had guided him to it. Or might it not have been Gormala who had brought the blackmailers to my door? If she had no knowledge of them, what was she doing there now? Why had she sought this place of all places? Why at this time of all times? What or whom was she seeking amongst the cliffs? I determined not to lose sight of her at present, no matter what might happen. Later, when I had come at her purpose, either by guessing or by observation, I could try to gain her services. Though she had been enraged with me, I was still to her a seer, and she believed, must believe, from what had passed, that I could read for her the mystery of the sea. As she worked along the cliff above Dunby Haven, where the rock overhung the water, she seemed to increase both her interest and her caution. I followed round the rude wall which ran parallel to the cliff, so that I might be as near to her as possible. Dunby Haven is a deep cleft in the granite rock in the shape of a Y, the arms of which run seaward, and are formed by the mother cliff on either hand, and the lofty crags of the island of Dunby. In both these arms there is deep water, but when there is a sea on, or when the winds blow strong, they are supremely dangerous. Even the scour of the tide running up or down makes a current difficult to stem. In fair weather, however, it is fairly good for boating, though the swell outside may be trying to those who are poor sailors. I had often tossed on that swell when I had been out with the salmon fishers, when they had been drawing their deep floating nets. Presently I saw Gomala bend, and then disappear out of sight. She had passed over the edge of the cliff. I went cautiously after her, and throwing myself on my face so that she could not see me, peered over. There was a sort of sheep track along the face of the cliff, leading downward in a zigzag. It was so steep, and showed so little foothold, that even in the state of super-excitement in which I then was, it made me dizzy to look at it. But the old woman, trained on the crags of the western islands, passed along it as though it were the broad walk of a terraced garden. End of chapter 48